Gimme Shelter is supported by the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. No, I was just going to say it's like very nice to not have to run through how do you record with with someone. So that's a big positive. That takes up most of the time before we actually start interviews. Welcome everyone to Gimme Shelter, the California housing crisis podcast. I'm Manuela Tobias, housing reporter with CalMatters. And I am Liam Dillon, and I write about housing affordability for the Los Angeles Times. And today, Wednesday, April 27th, 2022, we're going to be talking about deplorable conditions at a large South Los Angeles apartment complex that have persisted for years, despite multiple public agencies knowing there were big problems. So we'll be covering the situation at Chesapeake Apartments in the Baldwin Hills, Crenshaw area of Los Angeles, where for a recent story, I found numerous apartments covered with mold-like spores, broken sewage pipes and heaters, poorly installed windows, complaints of missing and inoperable smoke and carbon monoxide detectors, and other major issues. In fact, many tenants told me that their health is being affected by what's happening there. And just as important, we'll be going over why the interventions in recent years of numerous code enforcement and public health departments haven't fixed the problems there, especially since the building is part of real estate empire of Mike Nijar, landlord who owns more than $1 billion in real estate, mostly in Southern California. A couple of years ago, the website LAist wrote a deep investigation into Nijar and found slum-like conditions at many of the properties connected with him. So to talk about this issue, we have, as always, the perfect guest. Who is it for this episode, Manuela? We'll be talking with Aaron Mendelson, the reporter who wrote that LAist investigation on Nijar's properties about what he found and why some of these issues persist. But first, we have the most popular segment in all of California housing podcastery. What are we talking about? It is the avocado of the fortnight. Indeed it is. Our look at the most zany or wacky happening in California housing over the past few weeks. And where are we going to this fortnight? We are going to Fresno, which is definitely my old stomping grounds. In fact, someone told me, perhaps it was you, that you were actually back in Fresno last weekend for the specific reason of examining our latest avocado. We love to talk about Liam, who's a more dedicated reporter here. So I decided to go all out and examine this week's avocado in person. Earlier this year, the mayor of Fresno, Jerry Dyer, launched an ad campaign to deal with Fresno's low self-esteem. The idea is to showcase uh, photos of community members that have a positive impact in the city and quote interesting facts about Fresno using banners around some highly trafficked areas. The city has spent tens of thousands of dollars actually on these banners, as my former Fresno Bee colleague, Brianna Calix, reported. Okay, so... I'm still struggling to see how I get from banners to avocado. Have patience, Liam. We spotted a photo of one of these celebratory banners on Twitter last week, and it read, quote, Fresno has the hottest real estate market in the U.S., a quote attributed to the L.A. Times. And I thought, wait a minute, that sounds familiar. <laughs> it does indeed sound very familiar because it turns out that that line was in a story that I, Liam Dillon, wrote about the Fresno housing market back in spring of 2021. 
I did indeed, in my story, my words, call Fresno the nation's hottest housing market. And that's because at the time, Fresno's rents were up nearly 40% in the previous four years, the highest of any large city in the country, according to Apartment List, a real estate firm. And at the time, Fresno's rents were zooming up while other big cities in California had their rents declining. This, of course, as a parenthetical here, has been reversed as LA and San Francisco rents are now back up again. Also during this period, Fresno's home values had increased by around the same amount. So we talked about all this on a Gimme Shelter episode last year, conveniently titled, Why is the Market in Fresno So Hot? I encourage listeners to check it out and maybe some people in Fresno too who worked on these banners. Now, this may be a little obvious, Liam, but what is the avocado element here? Much of my story was about how these soaring price increases were actually making it a lot harder for longtime Fresnans to afford a place to live, which, you know, probably isn't something you'd want to brag about on a street banner. Right. And Liam, how did you feel being quoted here? I just thought like the irony, like my eyes just got really wide. You know, Uh I look like, you know, the raccoon in the headlight, right? Just like, oh my God, I can't believe they're bragging about this. It did take me a minute to wrap my head around this. So while I was in Fresno this weekend, again, for for this reason, right, I went on a quest to find this banner and it actually, I didn't know where it was. I had to search for it. My friend said that it was probably going to be in this area and the busiest intersection between Shaw and Blackstone Avenues, highly visible in other words. And I am sorry to the cars that I annoyed with my slow driving. I was reading the banners as I, <laughs> and again, this is one of those really busy intersections where people are just zooming past, blasting music. So the banner hung on a light pole next to a bus stop in front of this big empty parking lot for a furniture store. And that's a pretty classic Fresno scene right there. I approached a cute food truck that was on this parking lot called Clash. Uh, I sell boba tea, lemonade, coffee. And I actually asked the owners, Elijah and Brianna Bukers, about the housing market. And turns out that this couple spent five months searching for a place to live in Fresno to cut down their hour and a half long commute from Visalia to Fresno. And they eventually settled on a one bedroom for $1,700. 1700 I mean, that's below what it is here in L.A., but that's still a pretty high price considering, you know, where Fresno was. We're talking about Fresno here, right? So that's what Brianna said, and I'm going to play the clip. People are barely making like $16 an hour, like, you know, like working part time, you know, and they have to, you know, pay for their food, pay for their gas, you know, they have to. And then they're over here paying $1,600, $1,700 for a one-bedroom apartment, it's hard, like. And here's her husband, Elijah. A lot of the city officials think this is a large town. Yeah. Most people still are farmers and work in, like, food industry. I mean, I went to school, like, South Fresno, and half of the people that went to that school were up at 4 a.m. working for their parents or working with their parents, farming, and then going to school. I then went over to the bus stop right beneath the banner and met April Amy, 22-year-old who's still living with her mom in what she described as a horrible neighborhood. She said she eventually wants to buy a car and find her own place to live, but even single-room sublets don't dip below $600, and she's struggling to even find a job. And then, I don't know if y'all need to know, but jobs in Fresno, I don't know what's going on. Like, I could go to SAC and have a job tomorrow. Here, it's like... I don't know. 
I put in applications from morning to night, and it's just like, I don't know. I asked Mayor Dyer's office for comment, and he wrote in an emailed statement, the intent of this banner is to demonstrate that Fresno is a desirable place to live, all for the purpose of reminding people who live in Fresno that we have a great city. They nonetheless acknowledged the housing crisis and said that they were focused on meeting residents' need. I'm really impressed. Their level of dedication to reporting out this avocado, Manuela. Of course, of course. I mean, it's Fresno. Listeners know my dedication. Now is a time for me to reveal the real reason I was in Fresno. I'm sorry to people who thought I just went for the avocado. I actually <laughs> went for a training conference, and that's where I met Aaron, who is our guest on this episode, who was teaching a class on data journalism. With all that said, why don't we jump into the meat of the episode, Liam? So a couple weeks ago, I got a tip about some really bad housing conditions at an apartment complex in South LA, and I decided to look into it. I get these kind of tips all the time, and I imagine you do too. What exactly about this case called your attention? That's exactly the situation that I get too. The sad reality is a couple times a week, I'll get an email from a tenant alleging a really difficult housing situation or a landlord saying that their tenant is taking advantage of, say, eviction protections or things like that. And, you know, the truth is we can't look into all these cases, but I do keep track of them to see if there are any trends or larger issues that might be at play. But occasionally there's a specific circumstance that kind of calls out for a deeper dive. So what was that here? Right. So first, what I was hearing about the extent of the problems at this complex. So you had multiple tenants describing issues like persistent mold and raw sewage on the grounds and alleging real health concerns like asthma issues and hospital visits. And then there was the size of this place. Chesapeake Apartments is huge. It's 425 apartments across 17 acres. So it's like a few city blocks. It's kind of pretty massive. To add to that, I heard that the city code enforcement department was just there recently for a required inspection that cleared the complex. So that would seemingly indicate there shouldn't be any problems at all, right? Raw sewage was post that visit. Exactly. Yeah. And then finally, I learned the building was owned by a company called Pama Properties, and that made it part of the real estate empire controlled by Mike Najjar, the subject of that LAist investigation about horrible conditions at his property. So it sounds like what makes the situation stand out is that there are big problems at a big property where there's been questionable public oversight and it involves a pretty notorious mega landlord. That's exactly right. So tell us a little bit about the complex. You said it's large, pretty horrible conditions. What else should we know? It was built around World War II, and the buildings are sort of barrack style. It's about two dozen two-story buildings surrounded by courtyards and open-air parking lots. Also very close to a few schools, including a high school right across the street. Just a few blocks from a stop on the LA light rail line that goes from the west side to downtown. So I talked to a couple of tenants who are paying about 1400 bucks or 1600 bucks a month for their one bedrooms. That's certainly low lower than the average in LA, but that's also not like incredibly unheard of low rent. What did you find when, when you got there? Really major issues. You know, I probably over the course of the few times that I was there visited about a dozen separate apartments in my reporting. I saw mold-like spores and dots just about everywhere and not just in bathrooms, but in living rooms and bedrooms as well. And I saw windows that didn't fit their frames and then kind of slammed down once they're open because they didn't fit. A kitchen sink that leaked when a tenant turned on their bathtub. A wall that sort of leached water, like water was coming through it when the shower was turned on. 
One time I was there, there was a pretty fetid odor coming from underneath multiple buildings. And in fact, a county public health inspection from the same day found that sewage is being discharged on public grounds outside the building. Wow. So that's where, where the, the odor was coming from. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That se- certainly seems to me to be the most likely explanation. These sound really awful. Even though these are below maybe the average rents, pretty large chunk of people's paychecks, I would imagine. Not to harp on my stomping grounds, but this story did kind of take me back to Fresno in that you've got on the one hand, these super expensive luxury apartments, like the one that Elijah and his wife live in. And then on the other hand, you've got these rundown slum types of housing that just never get fixed. What else did you find? Right. So that was, I just described what I witnessed personally. I had tenants show me doctor's notes saying that their young children suffered from asthma and the doctor attributed that to the mold in the apartment. I saw one really gross video among many gross videos of kind of black water rising from below a shower when it was turned on, kind of like from the tile floor. And then two years ago, you know, a three-year-old girl broke her hand and her mother told me one of these faulty windows slammed down on it. And then when I was there, I saw that the window was broken as that same window was broken. You said a big part of the story here is that public agencies had actually been to this complex and seen all these problems. Right. And so that's really where we start getting into some of the accountability issues and serious questions, I think, about how equipped some of these agencies are to prevent these sorts of horrible situations from persisting. So just since late December, according to the city's code and city of LA's code enforcement website, 20 complaints were filed with the city about conditions of the property with many of the concerns like the same as what I had just described. Sounds like the city has been out there a lot. Not only that, here's the real rub with that. Starting in December, the entire complex was inspected as part of a city of LA program that requires such buildings to be evaluated every two years for health and safety and building code issues. And code enforcement cleared this complex in early January, yet the problems obviously have persisted. Right, that part was wild. I saw in your reporting that you found most of the code enforcement complaints from tenants came after that required inspection was complete. How did the city respond to that? Yeah, so a housing department spokesperson told me the city had identified 71 violations during that required inspection we just discussed, but that they were all corrected. Also, they said it's not unusual for inspectors to miss some problems at complexes that are of that size, in part because tenants may not give access to their units. But again, I think like the volume and similarity of the problems across the different apartments kind of belies the idea that everything just sort of cropped up like yesterday. I mean, these issues were immediately apparent to me as a visitor and certainly seemed clearly to be structural. And then again, when talking to the tenants, they say, yeah, I mean, we've been dealing with these things for quite some time. So it sounds like there were deep concerns about how code enforcement has reacted. Anything else that caught your attention? Yeah. Five years ago, LA city attorney sued Niger over the complex, alleging that under his ownership, gang and crime problems had spiraled out of control. The suit alleged that nearly 3,000 arrests had occurred there, including hundreds for violent crimes in the two decades since Niger's company had purchased the property. 3,000 in that complex alone. Mm -hmm. That's really concerning. And again, reminds us of how visible this landlord has been on the city's radar for conditions like this to persist. 
As part of that case, a longtime LA property manager was brought in by the city attorney's office to assess the property. Expert Alex Bernstein said in a court filing, quote, I cannot recall ever seeing a property that is this size and value owned and operated by persons or entities who have, have to have a very substantial financial profile so starkly run down and seemingly rudderless in terms of management strategy for success. The LAS investigation had found it was like over $1 billion in assets. So Clearly, the problems here run beyond just crimes, even back then. So the city settled that case back in 2018, requiring the owner to install things like security cameras and gates. But it also involved some habitability upgrades and tenant protections. For instance, the landlord was required to make repairs and not pass those costs along to tenants. But despite this big intervention, again, clearly the problems are persisting. So before we get into what all this means and some of the landlord's history. What is the landlord saying about this? Yeah, so we told Jim Yukovich, who is an attorney who has represented Niger in litigation with the city that we were doing this podcast episode and asked him for a statement. So he sent us something over and I'll just read it in full. Quote, the owners and management of Chesapeake place a high priority on the health and safety of their tenants. They are committed to the timely and adequate repair of conditions reported to them. They have been and remain committed to providing safe, habitable, and affordable housing to the people of Los Angeles. Okay, but what do we know about this landlord? All of this relies on Aaron Mendelson's reporting from LAS, and we'll be talking more to him about his coverage. Mendelson found that what is now happening in Chesapeake Apartments seems like a theme at many of the properties that have been controlled by Niger. So according to the story, businesses connected to Niger account for at least an estimated 16,000 units spanning LA, San Bernardino, Riverside, and Kern counties, and even reaching Sacramento, Fresno, and Arlington, Texas. The businesses span $1.3 billion in real estate, 4,400 parcels of land, 4,300 eviction lockouts in Los Angeles and San Bernardino counties between 2010 and 2018, which actually represents one in 20 evictions in San Bernardino County over that time period alone. Wow. So this is clearly a massive set of real estate here. And some of the particular circumstances that were in the story that Aaron uncovered are, are pretty troubling. The Pomona trailer park owned by Niger Entity in 2005. Typhus broke out in 2015, LA County's first outbreak of the medieval disease in six years. At another Palma property, a manager testified that rats would swim in garbage water. Walls would, quote, bubble up with mold and roaches would, quote, fall over your body. At a third property, a lawsuit said that a cockroach infestation was so severe that one of the insects climbed into a girl's ear, which then required surgery for it to be removed. And then in one instance, a five-month-old baby died in a Kern County trailer park owned by Niger. Inspectors there found no smoke detectors and other problems with the facility and said the owners were negligent in their maintenance. I read this when it came out, but just... Going over it again for this episode just makes you gag. Like, it's unbelievable, particularly that the surgery. So what about oversight? Right. Here's the thing. So like what happened at Chesapeake Apartments, there was some oversight of these properties. The city of Pomona criticized Niger's company, saying it, quote, had a long history of disregard and neglect for public health. California Department of Real Estate called the company's action as, quote, completely unacceptable. Kern County DA called PAMA, quote, a sophisticated slumlord. So some people have made some pretty serious allegations about conditions at these properties. These are a strong words, but what do you think this all says about how exactly the government intervenes in these situations? 
Well, I mean, I think it says it's wholly inadequate. I mean, as it relates to Chesapeake, you had major actions taken by the city attorney and a required building-wide inspection by code enforcement, and that's not been enough to ensure livability. As a side note here, you know, a colleague and I did a major story on these crime-free housing policies that cities use ostensibly to address crime problems at complexes, and that's what the city attorney used one of these policies when he sued five years ago. My colleague Ben Poston and I discovered a lot of concerns about how these policies bar people with criminal records from finding housing even long after their crimes. So if you're interested in that issue, you should check out our story and podcast from a couple years ago. But even putting aside whether these programs are actually effective at solving crime concerns, obviously in this case, that intervention didn't make Chesapeake Apartments a long-term habitable place. You even had some quotes in the story from the city attorney's office to this effect. Right. I mean, essentially, they told me that five years ago, they're awaiting a referral from the city housing apartment to deal with code problems. And now they're awaiting a similar referral to do anything about this now. So their hands are tied. And you sort of see that lack of oversight overall in terms of all these properties controlled by Najer too. All these different agencies alleging all these different problems with the same owner, yet nothing really seems to be coordinated. Yep. And we'll get into that issue with Aaron. Is there anything else that we should mention before the interview? Yeah, I think that there is. And this is important. When I was working in San Diego, I would occasionally edit stories sometimes. And I worked on one where we had a great reporter who decided to see if she could find problem landlords in the neighborhood that she covered called City Heights. City Heights is a low-income, heavily refugee community near central San Diego. And she came up with a pretty ingenious idea to kind of cross-reference city code enforcement complaints with property ownership records. And she found a landlord that had had a number of problems across multiple properties that he had owned. And what happened? Well, the city acted actually pretty aggressively in shutting down some of the unit and forcing the landlord to act himself. But the problem was when major repairs were ordered, the tenants who were living there had to leave. And in a really hot housing market, that left some of them, in some cases, in a more precarious, potentially more precarious living situation than they were in previously. So it sounds like you're saying it's difficult to ensure that when properties like these need big overhauls, that tenants don't end up being displaced. And that's an extra layer to this issue that all the more implies that there needs to be kind of this holistic oversight of problem properties to ensure the well-being of those that live there. So with that, let's get to our interview with Aaron Mendelson. We're here with Aaron Mendelson. He's a senior data investigative reporter for LAist and KPCC in Los Angeles. Aaron, thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. Why don't you first tell us how you came across this story? It began with an effort to try and do a data story about evictions. And I was really interested in exploring what parts of Southern California were seeing the most evictions and had been such an issue that it kind of grabbed national attention, but there hadn't been this sort of kind of data reporting here in the state of California. And it turns out there's a reason for that. Data on evictions, as you guys know, is, is very difficult to come by. And really what you have to do is go to the very last step of the process and look at sheriff's department lockouts. So ultimately that's what I did and got that from several counties including San Bernardino County. You know, different counties, data is better in some places than others. And in San Bernardino, they had columns for the plaintiff and the defendant. And I just was scrolling through that and noticing like very similarly named plaintiffs again and again. So like Starlight Management 5 and Starlight Management 8. So it didn't take a genius to kind of put two and two together and, and realize that some of these entities might really be one entity. But I 
wasn't prepared for just how large the Palma and, and Niger empire was. It, it just felt like the more I learned about it, the bigger it got. Getting a grasp on even who owns a home, the home that you rent is not an easy task in California. And you created this map of all of Niger's properties and tracked acquisitions through the years. Could you walk us through that process and maybe explain why even that data isn't as easy to come by as we might think? If you don't mind, I'll nerd out a little bit. <laughs> so from the unlawful detainer data, I, I kind of went- Sorry, so so un- unlawful detainer is, is eviction data for the non-nerd. Yes, but yes, go ahead. Yeah. Uh-huh. So we went from the data on evictions to data on business entities, so corporations, LLCs, limited partnerships, and was able to find all these entities tied to Pama and Niger, Mike Niger, the man who really created this housing empire, by looking at those for basically their business address and and found over 170 different entities in the state of California. And then knowing those entities, I rounded up assessor data. So, right, every county has an assessor. It's an elected position, or at least it's an elected position in Los Angeles. And they track the value of homes, assess your home if you buy. Home is sold. And unfortunately, one thing they don't do is post data online that says who the owners of homes are. And and that's because of a obscure and strange law about making it illegal to post the home addresses of elected officials who are probably 0.01% of what's in their database. But because those names and addresses are in the database, they just don't post any of the names. It's still public information. You can get that. So we rounded that up for not every county in California, but several of the large ones. And we're able to take the list of 170 plus names and kind of apply it to that assessor data and start to see how many properties they own. We estimated they are tied to 16,000 units in the state of California and also in other states, Texas, Nevada, Arizona, over a billion dollars in real estate, turned up over 4,400 parcels to properties in this assessor data. The lion's share of those properties are in Southern California, right? Yes, yes. The vast majority were. And so they kind of started their empire in and around El Monte and Los Angeles County, and then gradually grew into the Inland Empire and to a much smaller degree to places like Fresno and Sacramento. So we detailed some of the major findings of your investigation earlier in the episode, and you just kind of laid out some of kind of the the big numbers in terms of detailing, I guess, the empire that Mike Niger had. But what was sort of the most striking finding to you? It was really shocking how large the empire was, but much more shocking than that even was just the conditions that people were living in. A lot of this reporting was just showing up at complexes and, and seeing what people had to say. And, you know, a lot of the stories I heard were really heartbreaking. We focused a lot of the reporting in San Bernardino, where, you know, a woman shortly after meeting her, she told me, hey, check out my jar I keep filled with bedbugs. One tenant that I interviewed at that complex was later murdered in the parking lot, that complex. So just really a lot of really heartbreaking stuff. And I actually have been to the Chesapeake's and, you know, heard stories from people there it's really heartbreaking to hear that they're still dealing with those problems. I wanted to ask too, I mean, was it kind of hearing not just the stories at individual complexes, but like kind of the weight of hearing similar conditions where you would go to the Inland Empire and then you'd go to South LA and then you maybe you'd go to like, you know, Breakersfield, right? Just like hearing the same thing over that, that weight of that must have been really expansive or like trying to sort of deal with and then and then conceptualize, right? All owned by the same person, the same conditions, but affecting so many people in so many different places. It is. I mean, it's a lot to have to process stories like that. You know, that can really affect your life. Unhealthy housing, 
don't always talk about it. It's not like the most exciting issue, but like that can affect the entire course of someone's life if you're growing up with mold or, or lead paint in, in your rental unit. To hear similar stories again and again is really kind of heartbreaking. And I think it was also very interesting for the tenants to kind of realize that their property was one cog in this massive, massive empire. They knew their landlord, you know, owned a few places in San Bernardino or the Antelope Valley, but they didn't, you know, they had no idea that ultimately he was living in a mansion in Bradbury, a a city many people even who live in LA County haven't heard of, one of the most exclusive places in California. It's so interesting to me too that the way that you came across this story was actually through evictions. Liam and I earlier were talking about how we get complaints from tenants all the time about these terrible conditions. So had you already like gotten complaints from people about this or did you just find out about these conditions after looking at the eviction data? It was really after and the eviction data kind of helped point some of the reporting towards certain complexes. So, you know, I saw there were more than 100 evictions at a mobile home park tied to Pama in Pomona. And so just went there and talked to people and listened to their stories. It was really those evictions that kind of sparked the reporting. What did some agencies do to intervene and what were the results of those interventions? Like, has Nijar or the companies connected to him faced any penalties? Yeah, so it's really interesting to think about how many different ways that this empire of housing has interfaced with government and regulatory agencies. So obviously there's the kind of standard code enforcement departments. Uh, Liam has written about their interactions with the Los Angeles city attorney. Similar stuff in San Bernardino, where the city actually placed a lien on one of the buildings, one of their large apartment complexes there, reduced it to $50,000. It was originally almost seventy five grand. Gosh, and they agreed, and San Bernardino told the city that they would install a uh, security guard at a property, have them there around the clock, you know, have cameras after there was a shooting. So, you know, they're dealing with cities, they're dealing with counties at that complex in Pomona. There was a typhus outbreak, and so the county public health department got involved telling tenants how to avoid typhus. There hadn't been a typhus outbreak in Los Angeles County for years. California Department of Real Estate has been involved particularly in their mobile home parks where they are sometimes selling the mobile homes to sort of their oversight. When there was a fire in Oildale right outside Bakersfield that killed a young girl, quite likely due to faulty wiring at the property, the local fire officials got involved, local law enforcement got involved, and the case was actually referred to the Kern County District Attorney who called Pama a, quote, sophisticated slumlord. So there was actually interest in criminal charges there. A judge decided there wasn't enough to file criminal charges there. But it's really government kind of at all different levels, no single agency that's really tasked with overseeing entity this large that controls conditions for so many people. There's really no single person who's kind of keeping an eye on them. Is that sort of how you would characterize the gaps in accountability? Because for sort of an empire this big and to have so many entities that are sort of watching it how can there be the types of conditions that you found? I think a lot of it goes to the kind of broader issues with the housing market. If you're a low-income tenant, um, you're not in a position of power. You may have just barely been able to get an apartment that is affordable to you or not even affordable to you. It's not like you can just up and move. And you know, for a lot of the people in these apartment complexes, people I've spoken to, the choice is really between that or couch surfing, sleeping in their car, and that's not an attractive option. There are a lot of undocumented folks in these complexes, and, and so they might be hesitant to report things 
And then even when things do get reported, they might be fixed in one unit, but not necessarily two units. And, and that's been something many inspectors have noted that you can't just fix the cockroaches in apartment 25. They're just going to scurry over to apartment 26. You really need to kind of holistically fix these things. So it sounds like then, given what you've reported on this, I mean, were you surprised to hear about the current conditions at Chesapeake Apartments? I was, because I was there probably in January of 2020. I believe it was the last complex I went to in my reporting before our our big story ran. And I heard mixed things. So I, I remember talking to a longtime tenant who was kind of pointing to windows that had recently been installed and said, you know, this is not something... We were asking for this for a long time, and this finally happened. But I I also remember talking to a man who's like, I've lived in Jamaica, I've lived in Atlanta, and now I've lived here, and this is the worst place I've ever lived. So there were definitely concerns. But to see that it apparently continues to be so systematic is, I suppose, surprising because there was that legal settlement. What do you think that says about the efficacy of enforcement mechanisms against landlords like this? The settlement, which promised repairs to the property, things to improve security at the property, and I believe also provided a gift card to to residents who were there, I think it shows that there is not necessarily a lot of scrutiny given after these settlements are inked. We're a few years out, and it sounds like many of the problems, tenants are saying many of the problems that existed before are are happening right now. And it, it just makes me think about how I heard about similar problems in so many complexes around the state. The Inland Empire, the Antelope Valley, people had these problems from Pomona to Palmdale. So I think at this complex, there would be greater incentive to make sure that it was cleaned up and that you were abiding by. But it, it seems like tenants are saying that hasn't been happening. So what was the reaction by Niger and his company and his uh, attorneys or others, folks that are associated with him uh, to your reporting? We didn't hear much from them. Showed up at their offices in Elmani and tried to speak to Niger. I I tried to drive to Bradbury and go to Niger's home. It's a gated community, so I wasn't able to get to his front door. You know, it was basically radio silence for months. It took a very long time to report the story, and, and I reached out to them on many different occasions. Right before we published, we got a statement that was from PAMA. It didn't mention Niger by name. So every time I do a follow-up story, and there's been several, I reach out to Niger you know, email, I, I reach out to his attorney, and I never hear anything back. You mentioned that uh, follow-up stories. What happened since that big investigation published? So pretty quickly, there was became an issue in a city council race in the Los Angeles 4th Council District where David Rue was. He had received campaign donations from Niger, and so he returned those. District attorney candidates, so at the time this would have been George Gascon, Jackie Lacey, were talking about the story. Buffy Wicks, the state legislator, the assembly member from Oakland, was pushing for the rent registry, I believe that's what it's called, as she has in subsequent years, but at the time was pointing to the story as one reason why it was needed. And then we've also seen seen things like there's now a, a lawsuit in federal court over alleged housing discrimination at a NYCHA-connected complex in, I believe, Riverside County. Los Angeles City Attorney has filed another lawsuit about a different Palma property in North Hollywood. Complaint there talks about some really horrible conditions, you know, bullets are 
whiz, whizzing around this property and going into the church next door. You know, people's lives are, are really in danger. And, and they say that pretty simple fixes, you know, fixing the gates there, things like what they tried to do at the Chesapeake's would, would make a big difference. So we kind of keep coming back to this question about oversight. And you talked a lot about like kind of the, this sort of network of different state, local, like city, county agencies that were involved in some respect looking at a, I guess, either one building or one transaction or one sort of thing, right, that was happening at individual complexes. But I think it's pretty clear from, certainly from your reporting, and then also from what has sort of persisted here at some of these properties, that the oversight has not been effective at a global or umbrella scale to understand the scale at a scale of this many properties that one individual landlord owns with many of the same problems that are occurring at, at each of them. What do you think needs to be done or could be done to ensure that oversight, whether it's at a local or a state or even a federal level, you know, is more effective so that folks are not living in these conditions, A, and B, those who are responsible for those conditions are held accountable for it. If I had an answer, I would let you know. And we do have elected officials who are tasked with coming up to answers with difficult problems like this. And it would be nice to hear them proposing solutions. But, you know, I, I mean, I can't say like after the fire in Oildale, the Department of Real Estate, some pretty strong actions, they stripped the real estate licenses or, or sought to strip the real estate licenses of Niger Realty, one of their entities, of Mike Niger himself, of Everett Miller, uh, has been his right-hand man for many years. And they were successful in, in doing some of that. So Everett Miller's lost his real estate license, Niger Realty lost his real estate license. But even in that case, they have been able to appeal and are now, I believe, in um, appellate court. Um, so even in a, what is way out of the norm in terms of regulatory action and cracking down, like has just been delayed and delayed and delayed. And the, the judges there could disagree and they could have their licenses back soon. So this clearly got a ton of attention, a lot of intervention from different government bodies, as we've discussed. But as I said earlier, we constantly hear about tenants living in pretty deplorable conditions. I'm wondering if you can give us a sense of scale or sort of the universe at which this might all be happening and we're not finding out about it. How much do you think is flying under the radar, these kind of conditions that we still don't really know about? It's such a difficult question to answer. And, you know, we've been talking about data and what it can tell us. And one thing it can't really do is, is answer that question. So even if you look at data on like code enforcement action, you know, either from cities or the county health does some stuff in that area, like you just can't look at it in a global way. You can look at it and say, hey, here's a building that's had been dinged a number of times. But we just don't have data that says, what are all the apartments in California that have roaches scurrying around them right now? Like, what are all the rental units that have black mold right now? Like, we don't know. And, you know, I, I have some sympathy for the regulators. These are not problems that are easy to see. If you walk down the street, it's not necessarily obvious, you know, what rental housing might be unhealthy housing. Lead paint is it's not only one color. It's You have to test for that. They're very difficult things to document in part because of that. It's really hard to know what the true scope of the problem is, but we know that there are lots and lots of our neighbors living in unhealthy housing. That's for sure. So before we, we end this, I want, we wanted to ask sort of one more thing about that touches on what some solutions might be and then some of the problems that those solutions might even create. I mean, 
if you want to make a major overhaul and major repairs to an old complex that may need it, that ultimately end up displacing people that are living in those units right now. And you hinted at this earlier that many of these folks are one step away from either homelessness or couch surfing or a combination or their vans or cars or all those sorts of things, right? So like, what can be done to address that? And how much of a concern do you think that is in trying to make the fixes that are necessary so that folks are not living where there is black mold and there is roaches. I mean, that goes back to the scarcity in affordable housing in this state. There's just not enough to go around and it's kind of musical chairs, unfortunately. You know, there's certainly been cases in the Palma Empire and housing connected to Mike Niger that there have been really egregious conditions and regulators have ordered changes and then the company has had to pay for hotel stays for tenants while their units were being fixed up. But that's definitely the exception to the norm. I mean, would more of that help? Would more aggressive programs there help? You know, it could certainly help in individual cases, but would it comprehensively fix our issues with unhealthy housing? I doubt it. You mentioned the precarious situation that a lot of tenants who do face these conditions are in. Do you have any advice maybe for people who are in these kind of conditions of explaining a little bit what kind of protections exist when you do want to report these kind of things, but again, fear repercussions? I still hear all the time from Palma tenants. I get, I get a lot of email voicemails and I, I try to return them. And, and what I you know typically say is I'm not a lawyer. You know, I can't answer legal questions, but there are legal organizations that work with low-income tenants I share that information. Or, or if they're facing eviction, you know, organizations that work with people facing eviction. I don't know that I have better advice than that, unfortunately. Thank you. <laughs> uh, I feel like I have not been able to answer a lot of your questions, but these are just such, like, big problems, as you guys know from your reporting, that, you know, the Palma and Niger Empire, uh, clearly there are many units within it that are symptoms of this problem, but how do you, how do you solve these problems? They're, uh, I don't know, they're huge, they're huge problems. Aaron, is there anything else you want to add or you want to emphasize or make clear to our extremely vast and influential audience? Well, you know, I mean, I, I guess I would say that you know, all problems are political problems and, and the big solutions are, are going to have to come from probably not even regulators, but elected officials. And in, until there's more interest from elected officials, it's hard to see big solution emerging. All right, Aaron, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Aaron. You bet. My pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to Give Me Shelter. If you like us, please continue to rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts and your other favorite podcast service. Again, this is really important so that we can get new listeners. So please do, do it. Our editor is Victor Figueroa. Victor, we really appreciate you. Thanks so much. I'm Liam and I work for the LA Times and you can find me on Twitter at Dylan Liam. And I'm Manuela Tobias from Cal Matters and my Twitter handle is at Manuela Tobias M. Thank you so much for listening.